It's that time of the week again. You are about to participate in a great adventure. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop? What the hell do you think you're doing? It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris. Oh my God! As they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. I wouldn't do that if I were you. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. It's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. As well as the music of today. Excuse me while I whip this out. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Who are those guys? Digital Kill the Radio Star starts Come on, quit stalling! Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. Got a very special podcast for you planned today. I'm flying solo without Chris, and uh, I've got a, a new friend that we're going to be discussing some Black Crows music with um, in just a moment. Before we get started, I want to ask you if you could follow us on Twitter at Digital Kill, on Instagram at Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast, and subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, Laughable, Earpeeler. Stitcher and uh, Apple Podcast, and that way, uh, whenever we deliver a new episode to you, um, it will just show up on whatever device that you choose to uh, to listen to your podcast. So uh, everybody knows I'm a huge Black Crows fan, and uh, pretty plugged in with several Black Crows message boards and Magpie Salute message boards and Chris Robinson um, sites. And so a couple of months ago, I sent out a uh, message on uh, the True Fans of Magpie Salute uh, Facebook page saying, hey, would anybody be willing to come on my podcast and talk about uh, different Black Crows albums? Well, the response was a whole lot more than, than the number of albums the Black Crows have, so I had to try to weed through those, and I really appreciate everybody for offering to be on um, one of these episodes. So I did one a month or so ago with Jessica Coreco on Shake Your Money Maker, and so this week we're going to focus on the album Amorica. And uh, the first person, one of the first people to respond to me was Craig Helmrich. And Craig is a musician himself and has a musical project called It's Just Craig. So we'll get into that for, for, for a little bit here at the beginning. So uh, first, I want to welcome Craig to the podcast. Thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So Craig, uh, I like to ask people when they come on our podcast uh, the same two questions every time to begin with. What is your earliest memory of music, and who was the artist or band that uh, you just really first, you know, got got hooked on music because of? Man, the earliest memory of music. I've never thought of that one before. That's a good one. Um, probably my mom playing Doobie Brothers records um, is the earliest thing that I can remember uh, really getting into. Um, getting hooked on music. You know, I don't know. My mom's family has a lot of people in it that are musical, um, and they're always they were always playing in bands. 
um, a lot of 50s and 60s stuff. Um, and so I just remember always wanted to be like them, always wanted to be like my uncles. And so I'm sure they you got you got a hold of their record collection and uh, and just took off with it. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so Greg, you have a band called It's Just Craig, and um, you have two albums out, and I've listened to both of them. And I, I sent you a message the other day that I thought it was some of the more original sounding music that uh, that I've heard in a while. And while doing some research on you. I came across two terms used to describe your music, and I wanted to see what you thought of that. Uh, goth uh, country <laughs> and goth Americana. Now, I know a lot of musicians do not like to have labels, so I didn't want to call it that in case that was something that you didn't agree with, but I thought that was a unique uh, a, new, a unique title for uh, a style of music. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I love it. I had never heard it before, uh, before somebody, I, I forget who... I think it was an artist named Baby Ocho that, that used the term first and then other people started uh, just started copying the phrase he used. And, and I had no idea what it meant at first, but, but now I kind of love that, that there's some sort of unique you know, you know, genre that, that people have described it as fitting into. All right, so if you had to describe it to someone that has not heard it, what, how would you describe it? Uh, you know, I usually tell people it, it sounds like... Um, the indie pop stuff that that John Vanderslice, uh, who produced it, does. So, like, you know, there's a there's a hint of Death Cab for Cutie and uh, some of the stuff like that in it. But if Mark Ford was their lead guitar player, because uh, you know Mark Mark's all over it, um, and so it's it's kind of a melding of styles. There's blues rock, you know, combined with indie stuff with some '70s keyboard sounds because the keyboard player was phenomenal. So it's a whole bunch of different things. So how did how did Mark and Mark's son Elijah plays on it as well, right? He does. How yeah. did how did that happen uh, to come about? So um, I guess I was uh, a couple years ago. I was about to turn forty, um, and I came up with this idea that that maybe I'd do a an album of cover songs uh, for my fortieth birthday, like a planned midlife crisis. And I realized when I started trying to cover stuff that. I like the original artists doing things way better than I like me doing their songs. Um, so I thought, well, maybe I'll try to write something. So I wrote one song. It's Lucky Rider, the first single off of the first record. Um, and I sent it to Mark and to John Vanderslice um, kind of as a joke and said, hey, I know this guy who's making a record and I can probably get you guys on it if you want to. And literally within 10 minutes, they both responded and they both said the same thing. You know, fuck yeah, was was the quote from both of them by email a couple minutes later. And so I went and told my wife, hey, I, I think we're making a record this fall. Uh, and so I spent the next six months writing the other nine tracks on that record um, and, uh, and talked with Mark and, and Elijah about playing on all of it. Um, and... Uh, we all flew out to San Francisco to, to Tiny Telephone, John's studio. Um, I guess that was fall of 15, October of 15. Um, and, and it was one of those things I didn't know if, if I'd ever listen to it again. Um, you know, it was just something to do. Uh, and uh, we, we made an album that was a whole lot better than I thought it, it was even capable of being. And we got radio airplay around the world, particularly in Europe. Um, and, 
it went so well the first time we decided to do another one. So uh, about a year and a half later, we went back to, to John's studio and Mark and Elijah came out. And Jason Sloda, who plays drums in town to get down, stay down, played drums on it for us again. And Rob Shelton from Myrna played keyboard on it again. And, um, well, how, really, did, how did, how did you get to know, uh, Mark? Um, you know, I was the guy that taped Black Crow's shows, um, starting in like 97. Um, and, uh, so I went to dozens and dozens of Black Crow's shows, traded, you know, traded recordings of those shows. Um, and when Mark was out of the Black Crow's doing Federale, um, I met Mark, um, I taped a bunch of their shows, um, and we just kind of hit it off, um. In, in the federal years, I think it was uh, summer and fall of '99, um, and then we just stayed in touch a little bit over the years. And um, do you feel like recording shows like that is kind of a lost art form? Since now most people have their own, you know, they they put a, like the Black Crows have you know their own uh, download service. You know, there's Nugs, uh, Chris Robinson does it, uh, Magpie, you know, his own Nugs. Do you feel like that's kind of a dying art form, so to speak? You know, I used to think that, um, but I've taped a couple shows recently. I taped the, um, I went down to Tennessee for that Magpie show they did at uh, Family Wash, the little coffee shop that holds like 150 people uh-huh. uh, earlier this year, and I taped it. And then I went backstage to hang out with the guys, and backstage there was like a 32-track multi-recorder set up. And I listened to my tape and I listened to, you know, a little bit of what was what was going on in the back room. Uh, and I should have saved I should shouldn't have wasted the time. Uh, what they had recorded was 100 million times better than than the best live recording I've ever made. So, you know, so many of these venues now, you know, like if, if a little coffee shop that, that fits 150 people has a 32 track recorder, you know, wired into their sound system they're going to be able to mix for, you know, crowd noise and instrument levels and other things that the two microphones I throw up on a mic stand can never compensate for. So I miss the community of it all, like how we used to mail each other blanks and, you know, beg people to send you the top secret show that nobody was trading. B and P's. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I miss, I miss all of that. Um, but the quality of stuff that people are putting out, the bands themselves, particularly, it's it's so much better than what we could do as tapers. Yeah, I remember when um, uh, the band sessions first started uh, circulating, and uh, I mean, you was just desperate to find somebody to, you know, make you a copy and and, and send it. And I, I really enjoyed all of that. I was big into collecting uh, in the mid to late nineties uh, widespread panic shows okay you know on, on cassettes and, and stuff like that so all right so it's just craig has two albums is there are there plans for a third one we're doing um a little ep in about a month um there's four songs on it um four new songs and then a jason molina cover uh, i just got asked to contribute to uh, uh they heard 39 on on the last record there's a hidden track at the end that's about jason molina and and some of the fans and his family heard heard that track and asked me to to do a cover of his on a tribute album that's coming out. So I guess I have five songs coming out in about a month. Well, that's um, cool. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm now, now from excited. from what I from what I read, correct me where I'm wrong. 
you don't really perform live very much. Is that right? Yeah, I think we've done 20 shows in two years. Um, so when I get a good opportunity, I just opened for Robert Ellis, um, who's a friend. Um, and in the fall, I opened for Richard Edwards and Jenny O, um, who are friends. Um, so when there's an opportunity I can't turn down, I'll take it. I'm certainly not the guy that's playing the local coffee shop for three hours every Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the gig has to be pretty cool. Um, so, well, before we get into Black Crow's discussions, why don't you tell everyone where they can find your uh, find your music in, in your social media site? Sure, um, it's it the websites. It's just Craig dot com, um, and I should probably tell people um, we did a campaign where uh, we're giving away the music. We're not trying to sell it. Um, I've got a day job that's pretty cool uh, that pays the bills. Uh, and so I didn't want people to feel like we were taking advantage of them on the music. So we have a couple, I think we have a dozen, maybe 20 copies of the record left um, of each record. Um, so if people find me, it's just Craig.com. Just shoot me a message um, and we'll mail you. We pay for postage too. So anywhere in the world, if you want a copy of, of our records on vinyl, on CD, if you want us to send you a high res download, um, just get a hold of us and it'll be on the way. It's the free until famous campaign. I'm not quite <laughs> famous yet, so it's still free. Uh, well, that's that's really cool. You kind of you kind of took uh, some of the steam away from me because um, I'm a big believer in paying for music, and uh, most of our tweets I use the hashtag buy music. Uh, so for this for this one episode, everybody, uh, let's let's forget hashtag buy music and just hashtag get free music from Craig. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, that's very cool. And like I said, I encourage people to listen to it. Uh, it's very unique and original, and uh, it's got Mark Ford playing on a lot of it. And so uh, you, you can't you can't beat that. So um, let's get into your Black Crows history. When did they first kind of come on your radar, and how did they come on your radar? The very first concert I ever went to was ZZ Top and the Black Crows at the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago. On the on the Shake Your Money Maker tour, uh, well, I guess it was on the ZZ Top tour, or whatever tour. Before, ZZ before Top. they got thrown off, huh? Yeah, I caught one of the shows before they got tossed, um, and I was in the third row, so I got a real up close view of it. And I'd never been to a concert, you know. I was I, I don't remember, like maybe a sophomore in high school, and um, it was raw and it was powerful and and it was like cool uh, and then zz top came out and zz top i couldn't figure out how they were doing everything they were doing they were inside paper mache cars with their arms sticking out through the window and the and the windshield with guitars like over their heads you know and still playing these amazing licks and spinning guitars and floating through the air um and at first i thought gosh what a what a juxtaposition between two things you've got the this raw band that sounds like they're playing you know in a garage that's perfectly on time perfectly on pitch just full of energy and obviously live and then you had zz top that was this amazing show it was a spectacle but as a young kid i remember thinking like how can they be so different and it wasn't until chris robinson called him out for lip syncing uh, that I was like, oh, that's exactly why it felt so different because all of that music and all of those vocals were tracked. And, you know, you had one band playing live and one band putting on a show. Um, so that's my, my first exposure to the Black Crows was, was that show. Um, and I wasn't madly in love with them 
you know, then it was just kind of, um, I accidentally stumbled into him there. Um, and I loved what I saw, but it was really, um, Southern harmony, uh, that, that, that was kind of the point where I was all in. Um, so how many, how many shows do you think you've seen? Oh, it has to be 50, 50? Um, probably more. Yeah. I think I think I'm at I think I've seen twenty. So you know you've got me beat uh, by a considerable margin. Yeah, Southern Harmony. Uh, I tell people all the time it's my favorite album. Uh, it's my favorite album of all time, and it's one of those you know it's one of those rare ones where every time I listen to it, I put it on and I listen to it all the way through. It's not like, hey, I just want to hear you know sometimes Salvation or Hotel Illness. I want to hear it all. And uh, much like uh, uh, Exile on Main Street, I'm the same way with that, same way with Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, I don't want to skip any of the tracks. And, you know, it, it's I've talked about on here before, the fact that the Crows were able to be successful when they came out really speaks volumes of their talent and, and kind of their swagger. Because when, when Shake Your Moneymaker came out, I mean, everything was Def Leppard, Poison, Motley Crue, and Metallica. You know, and they got kind of lumped in to some degree on on some of these festivals, uh, especially over in Europe. And then they they but they were true to you know true rock and roll. And I think you you had people kind of clamoring at that time for something other than. I mean, I love Metallica, I love Poison, I love Motley Crue, but you had people clamoring for for something that sounded more like those 1970 Stones records, and. They were able. They were able to stick to their guns with what they what they knew was right and what they you know enjoyed doing, and then the Southern Harmony comes out and they and they just kick the door down and they're like we're the baddest band in the land. There's nothing you can do about it. And those yeah. I love. I did not get to see any of those shows on the uh, Highs the Moon tour, but they are some of my favorite uh, concert videos to watch, especially when they would open the show with No Speak No Slave. I mean, yeah. I. I I dare say, and I've said this before, I went and saw uh, As the Crow Flies in um, New Orleans this past summer. And, of course, you know, haven't seen Chris do those songs in a long time. Haven't seen him really be a front man in a long time. And I told my wife, I said, that's the best front man since Mick Jagger. And I, and I, I truly believe that. And with Southern Harmony, they just really said, you know, we, we're we good. I feel, like, I feel like when they came out of the studio, they were like, we're the baddest band in the land and we know it and we're about to show you. And I think that album was recorded in like 10 or 13 days or so. I've heard different reports, but I've never heard anything longer than 13 days. So uh, yeah. we'll go with that. So before we get on to Morka, your, your thoughts on Southern Harmony. Yeah, it's um, certainly in my top five albums of all time. Um, start to finish. Uh, I, I love that thing. Um, uh, I agree with you. You know, I think I only caught one show on that tour. Um, I wasn't run taping yet. Um, and I, 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 I regret not catching more. Um, but for sure. I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest records. I asked Mark once how long it took to record that. And I think he's, I think his line was, I think I said it was billed as a lost weekend. And I think he said it was a lost couple weekends, <laughs> but that's, that's all the light I can shed on the length of that one. Yeah, I've heard uh, I've heard uh, Rich on a couple of podcasts, and I've heard uh, Gorman on a couple of podcasts, and they both give kind of differing uh, differing times. But it was not very long uh, for an album to come out that sounded as good as that one did. It just sounded perfect to me. So you'd sent me on one of our uh, Facebook uh, correspondence uh, that uh, it was the uh, Amorca or Bus Tour that really did it for you. 
Yeah. So, uh, what what was it about that? Was it one particular show where the light came on, or was it just was it a a build up over several shows? No, I think um, I, I I'd kind of forgotten about the Black Crows for a minute um, around that time, and I was at Butler as an undergrad. Um, and I was in charge. I was the RA in charge of uh, a unit of kids. Uh, I always tell people, I always say, you have bad memories associated with RAs. And so I always tell people, hey, I had two rules. If I didn't see it, it didn't happen. And if I saw it, I better have been invited first. Um, so uh, it was a, it, that was a good semester at Butler. And we had a, uh, we had a faculty advisor, uh, Dr. Andrew Levy. Um, and Dr. Levy decided that it would be a good idea to take our entire unit um, to a concert. Um, so we used Butler's money to take like 20 guys to a Black Crows show. Um, wow. Had, yeah. You know, I mean, it wouldn't happen in today's world probably, but, but in, uh, what was that, 94, 95, somewhere in there. Um, in, in March, we, we went to the Marat in Indianapolis and caught one of the, caught one of the shows on that tour. And it was one of those shows where I, I don't have the set list right in front of me, but I certainly remember gone and no speak, I think probably, and my morning song. I mean, it was like one of those shows where all of the, the big heavy hitters, you know, were all played in a row right out of the gate. Um, and it was so loud. We were 20 rows back. And I think everybody's ears were bleeding. Um, and half of the guys had never heard of the Black Crows, or they knew one of the radio songs, but none of them knew any of those really powerful jams. And everybody left there just thinking, like, that was the greatest thing ever. And I had, I didn't, I had never seen Mark play, um, I don't think, um, until that point. Or I certainly didn't recognize it if I did. Um, and it was such, a, such an addition you know, to, to their sound, um, to have Mark just ripping through all of that stuff. Um, yeah, he definitely, you know, I think brought everybody up a level, um, with his playing. And, and Ed too, you know, it, uh, I, I, the first time I saw him, Ed wasn't there for sure, you know? And so it was such a, you go from that ZZ top tour to, to that Amorica tour and, all right, so so when you saw him, was was Chuck Vell on keys then, or did or he did he just play on Moneymaker? Did he he never actually toured. Yeah, with him, I don't he? think he toured. The only time I can really remember seeing Chuck uh, is the Blue Floyd stuff. And, right. Um, All right, so you you go to this uh, a Morker bus tour, and that's the tour where the crow was dressed up like uh, Uncle Sam, isn't that right? right. Yeah. yeah, sure. Awesome, awesome. All right, so let's get into a Morka. Uh, it was the Black Crow's third album. It came out in 1994. And after the uh, aforementioned uh, Southern Harmony tour, they uh, went into the studio and recorded a bunch of tracks that became known as the Tall Sessions. Now, uh, my memory's a little sketchy on some of the details, and you probably know more than I do, but originally the band sided with Chris and wanted Chris to produce the tall sessions is it have you read that or heard that you know i don't rem i don't remember okay well I, and then the, uh it, they wound up scrapping that and and going back in the studio and for the article i read rich said that most of these mixes are the ones that he approved of and wanted to go with so 
who knows? I read it on the internet. It doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> mean it's mean it's true. If I ever have Rich on here, I'll have to ask him about that. So we've talked about a little bit the evolution of the first couple albums. The first album. Uh, let me go off on a tangent here real quick. One of the most frustrating things about being a Black Crows fan is every review you read of them, no matter the time frame, the album, or anything, always talks about the faces. And to me, that is lazy, lazy, lazy journalism. Yes, that first album clearly faces Rolling Stones all over it. The second album... To me, not so much. By the time they get to Amorica, they have perfected. I think this is when they perfected their sound. I think it's the perfect bridge between where they were with Southern Harmony and where they went with Three Snakes. Um, I just, I, 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 I believe that. I believe this is the sweet spot uh, for them. So, obviously, the first thing you see, Craig, is the yeah, album. It's the album cover. Yeah. So. That generated a ton. I remember a ton of publicity, uh, most of it negative. And I really think this hurt the album sales because in a lot of places like Target and Walmart, they refused to carry it. And the Crows at that point were still probably identified by most people as a Southern band. And uh, I, I live in the South, Walmart. There's a Walmart on every corner, you know, and when you immediately reduce a lot of uh, people's uh, ability to buy the album, uh, you hurt your tick, you know, you hurt your album sales. But what were your thoughts initially when you saw the uh, the album cover, and did you know what it was from, or did you just think that was a uh, kind of a cool picture? Yeah, I um, I had no I had no knowledge of the backstory, um, and you know, I thought it was a genius marketing play. Uh, because the crows at that point, you know, Chris has a reputation for irritating people and burning bridges and, and, uh, getting attention and they sure got a lot of attention. You know, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I mean, yeah, it hurts them not to have it in retail outlets. Um, but in terms of their reputation as, as, you know, the bad boys of rock and roll, um, maybe it helped some of that, um, so, you know, I'm not sure if the stats got better once there were alternate covers out there. Now, uh, the original CD I had, it was, it was blacked out. Yeah. And uh, actually, I think, um, uh, I think the first time I had the original album cover was, uh, I've started getting into vinyl in the last couple of months, and this was like one of my, fir- the first vinyl that I bought. So this is my first time having the naughty picture. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the back cover, I love it. Uh Got the the Sin City jacket, and uh, it's just a, a cool look um, on the back. I never had really paid that much attention to it until I got uh, the vinyl, and I think that's one of the great things about vinyl. You know, on a CD, that's what maybe three three inches by four inch, three inches by three inches or something. And I just love the detail that you get on um, vinyl and with the album cover. So you know, really cool back. Uh, I do see here it was produced by Jack Joseph Puig and the Black Crows, so I guess Chris and Rich still had um, a hand in it. Uh, like I said, my initial my initial thoughts think thoughts on the album, looking back on it, is it was a perfect bridge between Southern Harmony and uh, and Three Snakes. So I guess the first thing I want to ask you when you first got the album, what were your thoughts on it, and then have your thoughts on it evolved over time? Because I believe this is an album that you really have to sink your teeth into to really appreciate it uh, at its fullest. There's a lot of songs on there 
initially are, are great, sound great, and, and, and I, I still think are great. But there were some songs on there to me that were growers. And a lot of times those songs that are growers are the ones that wind up being your favorites. Yeah, I um, I've, I've, this one's changed in the rankings for me a lot over the years. When it came out, Gone grabbed me right away, and Descending at the end grabbed me right away. Um, and and I think a lot of them, and, and Wiser Time too. Um, and a lot of the stuff in the middle um, kind of got lost. Um, and then after seeing them as many times as I have in the middle and late 90s and early 2000s, um, I started realizing when I saw them live, a lot of the songs that I loved were the songs that I was skipping over in the middle of Amorica. Um, and so, and, and vinyl for me, one of the things, I mean, I love the sound quality. I love how um, there's so much more space between the instruments on vinyl than when something's digitally compressed and it kind of still sounds great, but there's just not the air between the different parts. Um, but my favorite thing about vinyl actually isn't the sound quality. It's that for somebody with ADD like me that, that, is always showing, hey, listen to this, hey, listen to that, listen to this. You know, I never get 30 seconds into a track when I'm showing a friend something I like before I'm switching to another track. With vinyl, it kind of forces me to sit through a side and listen to it in the way that the artist intended. Um, and this is an album that when you do that with this record, you know, it's on, I think it's on uh, two slabs of wax. So you've got four sides um, and uh, it really plays well and holds up well when you just sit through it and spin it the way that they they sequenced it for sure um those those three ford albums to me are all the same like that you just put them on and, and let it ride um all right so we mentioned gone the opening track um uh, this is one of my favorite uh black crow songs and i recently saw a, a tweet from uh, steve gorman and i guess he had you know probably hasn't listened to it in a, the song in a long time and he he tweeted, you know, I just listened to Gone, and he goes, "Man, we were a bad, a bad band." Uh, yeah. And the uh, I love the percussion at the beginning uh, starts off, and then man, it's just got a sweet groove. And then I think some of Chris's, uh, I think some of Chris's best vocals. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, like we said, a great way to uh, to start the album off. And then next is a conspiracy. If I remember correctly, that was the lead single. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I certainly remember it as a single. Um, you know, that's what—that's really probably I feel what hurt this record is there's no obvious single. You know, there was nothing that was easily digestible for radio on it. Um, great songs, you know, perfect for what the Crows did, but not really for where radio was at at the time. You know, you think 94, 95. Um, I mean, you're deep into you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic was all over. Uh, the radio and you had these easily I mean I love that record too but but it's full of you know give it away and under the bridge and these easily digestible pop rock melodies and this is just in your face rock um, and as a genre even you know you think about the that what was happening with rock radio at the time it was kind of disappearing and and um, you had stations playing classic rock and you had stations playing the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the homes for something, you know, like a conspiracy on, on FM radio were shrinking already. Um, I agree. And I, I don't think it was the best song to, to be the lead single, but, uh, I mean, who am I to, uh, who am I to judge? I would have gone with high head blues, but, uh, 
uh, a conspiracy. I'm sorry. I, I would have gone with descending, maybe. You know, <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe it's hindsight talking for me because you know that hook. I mean, that keys hook is just so tasty. Well, you know, at this at this time in the in the game, usually we've talked about this on this podcast before. Usually, you led with a, if you're a rock band, you led with a rocker, and then song number two was usually a ballad, and then yeah. you know if you had a third or fourth single, they were uh, they were other ballads. But yeah, I, I remember this video and. To me, the song sounds like if you wanted to, it might could have fit on Southern Harmony. Uh, you know, if that would have popped up as the tenth song on Southern Harmony or whatever, it wouldn't have sounded out of place. But we go on to the next song, High Head Blues, one of my favorite songs uh, on the album, and it's where the Crows, I think, really start developing their own sound. Um, I, I love both versions. I love the version on Tall, and then uh, I love uh, this version. Uh, Man, I feel like every time I see them, this song gets played. And, uh, the, you know, there's, there's certain songs that I feel like I've heard so many times they play, and I just, I kind of want to, like, thick and thin. For whatever reason, man, if I go, if, if David goes to see the Black Crow's Thick and Thin's in the set list, it's not a bad song. I just get tired of, you know, I get tired of hearing it. But High Head Blues is one that I, I, I do not get tired of. Um, yeah, I'm sure you've heard both versions. Uh, is is this your favorite version, or is the version from the Tall Sessions your favorite? You know, there's this thing you talk about when you're recording music called imprinting. Um, and uh, people that are produce music or that mix music are always saying, don't fall in love with the first thing you hear. So like when we made my records, I heard the initial mix of things, and then the final mix came out later, and certain instruments were at higher levels or lower levels. And I wanted it to sound like it did on that test mix. And that's imprinting. Like you fall in love with the first way you hear a track. And, and this, is, this track is certainly imprinted on me. You know, I, every time I hear it, I want it to sound like the record. Uh, and, and in the other version where there's more space and there's more things going on and it's a little, uh, I don't know, less in your face, um, I like the in your face version. And when I see them live, um, and they're playing it and it's cranked up to 11 and a half. Um, it reminds me of the record version. And when I see them play it acoustic, you know, like as a duo or something, uh, you know, I don't want to hear it at all. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, uh, so I think it's the, the record version is certainly imprinted on me and, 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 uh, that's the version I love. Yeah. I love to hear it, uh, played live as well. All right. So, uh, this will be our first, the next song is Cursed Diamond, and this will be the one probably where people start getting upset with me. For some reason, th- this song, it, it just doesn't do it for me. Um, and I know I know that's uh, sacrilege for a lot of people. Um, I think it's how long it takes for it to really gr- kick in, I think, for some reason, just bothers me. Uh, I love the guitar solo in it, and uh, I know this song is really special to a lot of Crows fans. It's not like that I hate it. It's just that um, I guess I just don't hold it hold it in as high regard as, as other people do. What What are your thoughts on Cursed Diamond? Yeah, it's one of the ones that, that missed me on the record the first time, and it took a lot of live shows for, for me to realize, like, um, it's a good breather, you know, from a pretty... Uh, heavy opening to the record you know i mean uh, producers are always telling me my stuff's too long and they always force me to cut my things down to like three or four minutes and so it's kind of funny looking back at these run times and going man they got away with a six minute song like 
Like that's a lot of song. Um, and it's hard to keep your audience through six minutes. So it's, it's a slow burn for a while. Um, but you know, sometimes I'm in the mood for a slow burn and, um, uh, I used to skip it every time on a CD. I never skip it on a record. Um, and I've grown to love it. Um, maybe because nobody's let me get away with recording a six minute song yet. I just love it. They, they got that done. Got to live vicariously through somebody. Through somebody. Might as well be the Black Crows. All right, so let's move on to nonfiction. Uh, this is a song that the band obviously really likes. Um, they have played it a lot, especially when uh, Mark is in the band, and a lot of times uh, they do uh, space this one out uh, you know, and jam on it. Uh, I like it. Um, at first, when I first listened to it, I, I'll be honest, I didn't like it. It was, it was until I heard it live that I really kind of understood it and, and, and appreciated it. And now, uh, uh, I think it's one of the better songs on the album. And if you're lucky enough, to, you know, well, I don't think we're ever going to hear the Crows play it again. But if you're lucky enough, when Magpie plays it, uh, I know they're not playing a lot of Crow songs on this tour, but if they do break it out, uh, it's great. And it's great to hear Mark Ford playing on it. And uh, some of the more interesting lyrics, in my opinion, in the in the Black Crows canon. Yeah, I, I um, it, it's one of my favorites, and not just on this record, but on all the Crows records. Um, I don't know. The lyrics make more sense to me than you know some of Chris's lyrics. Um, I just adopt them because they're they're Chris's lyrics, but I don't really understand them. I think they're more accessible on this tune. Um, you know, one thing people don't talk about a lot. Um, Mark gets a lot of credit, and and you know, I love Mark, so it's. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't want to take away from the credit that he gets, but um, I don't know if enough people give Rich credit because um, it's really the duo that makes Mark so great. You know, I've seen Mark in so many different projects, from Federale to Blue Floyd to his solo stuff to guesting with Mule and and all kinds of other people, uh, Blackberry Smoke, etc. And Mark is never Mark in the same way without Rich. Um, and nonfiction is a perfect example of, of Rich's counterplaying. And they have a weird way of communicating musically where they know where the other one's going to go. They know what their strengths are. Um, I used to think Rich was always pissed at Mark because of those faces that Rich makes at Mark Live. But it's just like the stage cues and like, you go here, I'll go next. And, um, well, I, you know, felt, I feel like he was pissed, but it wasn't at Mark. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, um, uh, it's funny because I've seen Magpie a handful of times now, um, and Rich makes those same faces in Magpie, but he's sort of smiling when he does it now. And I realized, oh, they're just cues. You know, it's just the communication from across the stage of, you take this one, or time to stop, you know, we're going to go back to the... Because Rich relishes his role as band leader, I think, as much as he does, you know, uh, as the primary writer for the Black Crow stuff. Um, but he, I, Rich deserves an immense amount of credit um, for, his, you know, his counter to Mark's playing. Because um, it just, Mark doesn't have that space that Rich gives him in, in other projects. Um, and Rich is so predictable and on the beat. Um, and that's one of the things, too, this record has a lot of. Um, I, li I remember listening to one of the live recordings with Mark. He'd mentioned a certain show in Vegas um, uh, one time when we were hanging out years ago, and um, I'd happened to convince a taper to give me a copy of that show. So we were sitting around listening to it, 
and he and and this is post Black Crows. I mean, this is like two thousand ish, before he was back in the band for that run in the early two thousands. And 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 uh, Mark said, "Man, listen to how far back on the beat we are. Like like listen to how like how how far back we're laying on that on that groove." And that's the thing that Gorman and, and Rich, you know, really set. It, uh, and, and this record's full of it, where so many bands are jumping the beat and they're just trying to get the next note in. And the Crows were so far, even when it's an up-tempo song, they're playing on the backside of every beat. And it gives it that groove that you that's, you know, certainly present on nonfiction and gone and a conspiracy. And you know, just almost everything on this record has that that backside beat groove well i mean you cannot talk about this record and not talk about the great steve gorman yeah he's 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 all over it and uh his his drumming uh he's my favorite drummer to watch live of anybody i mean i i I know nothing about playing the drums but i know he hits them very very hard and uh he just always seems to be having a good time and add so much to it and you know you had those few shows when they got back together in 05 where I was at Bill Dobro or Dobrow was you know was the drummer and obviously from all reports Chris was about to give the guy a panic attack on stage because you know he couldn't he couldn't fill Steve Gorman's shoes but I think uh, as we're going to get into this next song I think the, this is really an album where Steve Gorman and uh, Ed Harch really shine um, some of the songs that we've talked about High Head Blues that's got Ed Harsh all over it. Of course, we're going to get to his, you know, his, the best thing he's ever recorded here in a little bit. But She Gave Good Sunflower, the next song, uh, one of my favorites. I love listening to this song. It puts me in a good mood. And this has got Ed Harsh all over it. Uh, just has a great groove to it. And uh, I, I love the interplay with Ed and the rest of the band. And uh, I don't think I've ever actually seen this played live. So, um, I, I would love to see that played live. But this, to me, is one of one of the songs that stood out to me early on, and is still one of my favorites. Yeah, um, yeah, I miss Eddie. Um, yeah, he's he was the greatest. He was he was such a huge part of of the Crows, kind of developing their sound and and taking you know the Shake Your Money Maker stuff into this later stuff that just became so much more musical and expressive. Um, and he was also the sweetest of the crows. Um, hopefully Mark never listens to this and hears me say that. But um, uh, long before I was friends with Mark, um, you know, when I was just a taper hanging around, Ed would always come up and pretend like he knew you. And, and he, you know, you'd be at a show setting up early and he'd walk out and he'd say hi and he'd hang out for a minute. Um, and his joke with me was he'd always ask me if I had a light and I never did. Uh, and he remembered it the first time and like 30 shows later, he'd still walk by and ask me if I had a light and he wouldn't even wait for the answer. He'd just laugh, you know, laugh and keep going. Um, and, and I, I miss the, the sound of him playing. Um, and I miss the sweet person that he was, uh, well, I've read numerous interviews and in, in where I've heard Gorman say this and Rich say this, that he's the best musician they ever played with. Yeah, I think all all the people that have ever played with Ed will say that. Um, and it's a shame because I, I think on the mixing of maybe like Southern Harmony, I don't think there's certain songs I don't think he's really up in the mix. But when you would watch them live, like, for instance, No Speak, No Slave, some of those 92 videos, Ed is cooking over there on the keys. 
yeah, you know, and, sure. and he's turned turned up louder. But uh, she gave good sunfire. Was that one of the songs in the middle that you said that you would skip over for a while, or? Yeah, it took it took seeing that live a half a dozen or a dozen times, um, you know, for it to make it into my top songs, and now it's up there, and um, for sure it was it was one that took sinking some teeth into. Well, the next song is one that if I had to delete one off the album, it would be this <laughs> one, and um, I, I I'll be honest, I don't completely know what the song is about. P twenty five London, I don't like it. Um, I did see Magpie uh, last year in New Orleans, and they played it. And I'll admit, uh, I'd seen the Crows play it a couple of times, but uh, I did enjoy it when they played it uh, then. But uh, if there's one um, that I'm gonna skip, this is uh, this is the one. And you're smiling. You either you either in full agreement with me, or you're about to tell me I'm crazy. No, I, I agree. I've I've skipped this song more than most. Um, my favorite version of it is an acoustic version, um, from, from one of the stripped down shows that the crows did. Um, but I still don't get it. Um, and it, it takes, if I'm listening on vinyl, I don't skip it, but the rest of the time I do. Do, do uh, you know what it's about? I have no idea. I've never <laughs> figured this one out. You know, it's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm even looking at the lyrics right now, um, Wow. All right. I think a spider has mentioned in it or something at one time or I just uh it just never has uh it never has done anything for me and I remember when they um released that Lost Crows double album um the I guess it really didn't have a single but the first thing they made available before the album came out was their version of this and I'm like why and why on earth would that be your you know why would on earth would that be your your song that you want to uh, everybody to hear from this forthcoming rarities album? Uh, anyway, I guess uh, somebody they, in the band likes it because they play it a decent amount. They play it a lot. Um, I think I think they all like it, um, and it's probably one of those songs. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying not to to offend people by saying you know I've I've. I'm not a fan of the Allman Brothers song Dreams, you know, and I said that once around Mark and he was like, man, that's just a nine minute excuse for a jam. <laughs> uh, and I don't know if this one's like that, like just so much fun to play live. Um, every band has those songs, the songs that don't resonate with me, but I can tell that the band loves to play them. And I kind of feel like this might be one of those. Like it just, it's a good pocket to sit in. It's a fun space to be. Everybody can do something cool. Um, so, Hey, I'm in agreement with you on dreams. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like you. You have to be careful who you say that in front of because they'll, <laughs> they'll look at you like you have three heads. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's just a boring song. But anyway, we'll do an on my brother's podcast at some point. All right. To me, uh, now we're going to get into kind of a special time. Uh, uh, in Crow's recording history, I think, with uh, Ballad and Urgency. And for the longest time, if this song was played, it was also segued into the following song, Wiser Time. Uh, they don't do that. Uh, they haven't done that in the last 10 or 12 years. But when Mark was in the band, for sure, uh, that's how they played it. So let's let's don't consider it one song. Let's break it into the, the two songs. There's... Uh, Ballad in Urgency, and it originally was recorded, uh, I believe the original title was Lowdown, off the Lost Crow, was that, it, was, it would have been in the Tall Sessions, right? 
yeah, it would have been taller. Okay, yeah, different, uh, different lyrics. All right, um, I'm going to be honest with you. This is one of the ones, when I, when I say it was a grower for me, this was probably the one that was the biggest grower uh, to really appreciate it and did not fully appreciate it until I heard it live. And uh, I know that, you know, that, uh, the, you know, Ballad and Urgency and Wiser Time, it was kind of like uh, with the dead when they would do China Cat, Sunflower, and like, I know you rider, like, you knew if you got China Cat Sunflower, I know your rider was next. And so for, you know, 15 years, if you saw Ballad, you knew what was coming. So let's yeah. break it into the let's break it into two actual songs. Ballad and Urgency, like I said, is one that really had to grow on me, but a, a beautiful song, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm the same way. Um, it took, you know, as a taper, you'd always write out the set lists and you'd always like draw an arrow, you know, when the songs were connected to show that one kind of led into the other. And Ballad always had the arrow going into Wiser. And a lot of these songs did in that era. You know, you'd have a show where you'd have three or four songs that were connected to three or four other songs. Um, and I'm with you. Um, on the record, Ballad is a great song, but it, it definitely didn't grab me on its own. Um, I wanted to get to Wiser. You know, Wiser Time is, was one of the songs that was immediately accessible to me. Um, remains one of my all-time favorite Black Crows songs. Um, you know, a thorn in my pride might edge it out, but it's kind of in the this Wiser's in the same vein for me. Um, it's just got a, a wicked cool melody to it. But but um, not to jump ahead to that uh, ballad, um, it took that live segue um, where you know you knew you were going to get Wiser if you got ballad. Um, for me to really appreciate ballad and and it's a great song um, and it certainly is the one that that made the biggest um, jump for me the biggest growth over time yeah uh, uh, like I like I think we're in complete agreement on that so like we said it's always uh, on the album and live segued into wiser time now when it comes to if an alien landed from outer space and somehow communicated to me who are the black crows there's three songs i would give them in my opinion my morning song wiser time and girl from a pawn shop that would be the three that i that i would say this is the black crows and i've heard several of the members of the band say they think this is their the best song they ever did um it, it's it's played all the time it's i've never seen it played live and there not be at least a five to six minute jam usually you have uh whoever's on keys taking a solo and then uh whoever's on the other side of the stage whether it be luther or mark or audley they get a solo and, and and rich gets a solo and like i said i saw as the crow flies uh this summer and marcus king took a solo and so did um uh, audley um live this thing is just a juggernaut and it has such a cool groove to it uh i think maybe the coolest lyrics they've ever written um i just don't get tired of hearing this song live live or on an album yeah there's not a single version of it i don't love um it's it's a perfectly crafted song um and and lots of fun and just a, a song about being on the road and at that point in their life, uh, they were living. They were living the song. Because uh, if, if 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 Chris Robinson is anything, he's a road dog. Um, yeah. Just I, I think he prefers life on the road than than being at home. I mean, especially with the way he tours. All right. So the next song is kind of a, the oddball of the of the bunch that kind of sticks out as different. That's Downtown Money Waster. 
And uh, I go through uh, kind of ups and downs with this song. Uh, like you said, if I'm listening on vinyl, I don't skip it. Uh, if it comes on on my like a Spotify playlist or whatever, uh, about half the time I'll listen to it, half the time I won't. Um, it's it's kind of I don't know it's it's kind of the oddball to me on this um, on this album. But I know a lot of people like it and a lot of people don't like it. Um, so what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's got a weird shuffle to me. Um, I, maybe it's the tempo, um, but it just feels like. Uh, Chris Robinson was trying to do Robert Johnson to me. Um, there's just there's just kind of a weird uh, thing to it. I'm sure it's actually Rich. Uh, gosh, I hope Rich never. I, I hope none of the Black Rose <laughs> listen to this. But uh, uh, I, you know, Rich does kind of like some of that that funky tempo stuff. That's that's. Uh, I mean, even though they get unfairly compared to the faces a lot of times rich loves the faces you know and and he plays a lot of faces cover tunes and and some of that tempo to me uh is in is kind of double speed in songs like downtown money waster um and they don't resonate with me um the way that some of the other stuff does um so i agree with you it um lyrically and musically um it's just kind of there for me um I don't hate it, um, but it, it it's not in my top tracks off of this record. So, if you had to guess, who who was the more insistent on the on this being on the album? Um, well, I'm sure you know. Just like if you watch Rich warm up before a show, a lot of times he plays musical riffs that are like this song, um, and so I think he like I think he really likes the music. Um, and I think Chris was, oh, he always seemed real proud of, of this song, um, and real animated when he performed it. Um, and so I, I think they both love what they did on it. Um, and so I think for different reasons, I think they both probably really like it. They play it, you know, they used to play it a lot. Um, and so, it, um, they certainly don't hate it. <laughs> uh, hey, it's their album. They put on there what they want. That's right. All right, so um, we're going to go to the last song on the album. Uh, maybe the in, in the hearts and minds of most diehard fans like us, maybe the most special Black Crow song there is. And uh, inadvertently, a couple of weeks ago, on one of the message boards started, started a problem, and uh, my, my intention was not to do that. I posted... D- should Magpie not play Descending and just let that be Ed's song and you know just as a as a as a kind of a show of respect because nobody can play it note for note like he could and with the feel and I I, I, I don't care either way I, I was just I was just trying to start some discussion of you know it's held in such high regard nobody that plays it is going to be able to play it like him you know it's kind of like you never want to be the man that replaces the man and uh, anyway, it got a lot of responses and got some people fired up. And you know how people can get on social media, but that was not my intent. But if you've never heard this song, and I don't know how you're listening to this podcast, I've never heard this song, go listen to this song before you do anything else. And go try to find a live version of this with the outro of Ed playing on keys. And if, man, you know, like I heard a preacher say one time, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. Um, that is, it's just, it's a perfect piece of music. The lyrics, I think, are some of the more personal lyrics um, that, you know, Chris and Rich uh, have, have ever written. 
and musically this is this is all Ed Harsh and I did not like the version that was on Tall. Uh, I, I think this is the definitive version, and I, I see you smiling there. So, well, that's, uh, that, that's imprint. You know, that's imprinting, right? Right. If we fall in love with the first thing we hear. If 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 this album didn't exist and you only got the tall version, you know, I imagine it would still hold up as an amazing song, and you'd love that version, right? Um, you know, I agree with you. Like, I, I heard the tall version, and I I immediately recognized every difference between the, the Amorica version and the tall version. And I wanted the Amorica version. Uh, but then I felt a little bit guilty, like, Hey, had I never had this Amorica version, this tall version would be great. Um, and, and really we all want the live version. You know, we want a 12 minute with a four minute keys outro. Um, and, and I see your point too on, on should magpie play it or not. Um, I kind of am in the camp of, Magpies had some great keyboard players. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'm a little biased towards some of them. They've had some conflicts with some schedule, uh, and, and they had to have some people fill in. You know, Chris Conti. Um, Chris is a good dude. He helped me pre-pro my second record with Elijah. Um, and uh, so I'm kind of partial to Chris. Um, but, uh, you know, I've heard Chris play Descending, and if somebody has never heard it live, I don't want to deny him the the chance to hear it. You know, John is such a great singer. Um, you know, without saying anything, you know, I, I have I have some pretty strong feelings about Chris, and most of them have nothing to do with music. Um, but if if the Black Crows are never coming back, I love John. John's voice is phenomenal. John can certainly sing "Descending." Um, the keyboard players that Rich has in the band, you know, have always been more than adequate. Um, they're never going to be Ed. Nobody's ever going to be Ed. But, you know, like my daughter's first show was ironically a Crows show in 2005. And somebody's daughter today, their first show will be a Magpie show in 2018. And I hope they get descending um, because I want everybody to have the opportunity to hear that song live. And unfortunately, we can't hear it with Ed anymore. Um, but, you know, I, I still want people to hear it. I'm sure you've seen the video of that Gramercy show with the Ed tribute beforehand. Have you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can hardly watch that without tearing up. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, I, and I think that speaks volumes about what they thought of him because the Crows have never been a band that, that was kind of a sentimental band, you know, that, that did things like that. Uh, I always just got the impression, we love playing music. We're happy you're here. You know, we're happy you come to see us play music. Let's just have a good time. And, I don't ever really remember them, you know, being that serious about something like that. And I thought that spoke volumes of the respect that they had for him. And yeah, that with the uh, the curtain dropping when it when it kicked in. I mean, if that as a Crows fan, if if that if you don't tear up with that, something's you know you need to go check your heart because something's uh, yeah some, something's wrong. And you know, I, I I'm I'm glad that Matt Slocum you know is in is in there now, and he's a great keyboard player, and it sounds perfectly fine. Uh, when he plays it, um, so they they recorded a few other songs that did not make it. And uh, let me ask you this, because you obviously know some members of the band and, and are well more plugged in than I will ever be. One of the frustrating things about the Crows is they leave a lot of stuff on the shelf that <laughs> other people would kill just to just to have written. And I, 
take two songs that were recorded for these sessions, Feathers and Tied Up and Swallowed. Two yeah. of their but two of their better two songs. The yeah. And and they're just they're just sitting on a shelf somewhere for ten years. It, do you have any insight into how that happens? Because I mean, I hear those and I go, you know what? You take P twenty five London off and put Tied Up and Swallowed in its spot. You yeah, know? but you know, then you have a tempo problem. That's because, true. You know, Tied Up and Swallowed is kind of the same tempo as Gone and a Conspiracy and a couple of the other, you know, real jams on here. Um, I think Tied Up and Swallowed might have made this record um, if if they had, you know, some other tempo. Um, uh, you know, it's it's kind of when you lay them out all together. I'm sure that's what they did. I don't know that I've ever talked to to Mark about it. Um and I don't know how much Mark actually had into picking the songs and sequencing them. I think I think Mark was in there playing um, and and left it up to somebody else probably to to pick what went on it. Um, but I know Mark's process and and certainly my process um, in terms of recording is is uh, informed a lot through Mark. I take every song I have to the studio, um, and sometimes it just doesn't click that day, or you or it doesn't. It, maybe it does, but it, it doesn't fit what, what you thought it was going to be. And then when you try to put them in order, um, there's just not a home for it in the kind of soup that you've, that you've cooked. Um, so as a musician, if, if you had a song like Tied Up and Swallowed, you would sacrifice putting it out versus interrupting the flow of an album. Yeah, um, I like to, you know, my latest record, the um, uh, Dark Corners one, uh, thematically tells a story and and I don't know that the listener ever gets it but to me there's a story arc to the songs on that one and one of the songs from the first record uh, 39 we didn't get done um, in a way that I was in love with and so instead of fighting through it on the first session we had a little extra time on the dark corner sessions uh, and we tried it again uh, and we tried it in a circle, you know, Mark and Elijah and um, Jess and Kelsey Von Strantz who helped out with that record and, and um, uh, the other musicians all sat in a circle and I was in a vocal booth and we did it live in one take um, and it worked. And so then we had this thing that we knew was a gem, but it didn't fit the story arc at all. And so I, I don't know how many chances I'm going to have to put out music. So I put a two minute buffer of silence on the record between the thematic first eight songs and this and this one perfect gem that we caught that doesn't fit um and that's kind of what tied up and swallowed is for me is it's a perfect gem that doesn't really fit in the flow of this record um and so the thing that the crows did is they sat on it for for a long time and it was in the live set you know mm -hmm. a fair amount um, and I remember hunting for it, thinking, like, how can I get this song? And, and for a long time, live was the only way. So I get that, that you sacrifice it or you find some other way to put it out. It's easier to do now, right? Like, like I can press a button and a brand new song from my basement will be on Spotify within 24 hours. Um, but back then, um, you know, you're talking physical copies and distribution and, you know, tied up and swallowed, you could put as a B-side to some single. Um, but, you know, if, if it didn't fit the flow of the record, it was going to sit on the shelf for a while. Do you think we'll ever get a complete box set with everything they have? That, to me, is kind of my dream. Yeah, um, there. I would say that, no, probably not. 
Um, there, uh, there are too many different parties that have pieces of the collection. Yeah, you know, um, Chris and Rich have have some of the the ownership, from what I understand. But then you've got whoever helped put out each one of the projects, and you know, you look at the back of each record and see, you know, American, you know, on some of these, like like the one we're talking about today, um, and you see different labels on on different you know parts of their catalog. Um, so you know, I think. I think we probably have about what we're going to get um, from from the Black Crows. Um, well, let me ask you this: since we since we met on a uh, Magpie Salute message board, um, I think August the tenth is going to be a fun day when yeah. uh, when that album comes out. I I uh, in the last five or six years, I, I feel like uh, with a lot of bands, I've gotten my hopes up, and the, their releases just have fallen a little short maybe because i've built them up too much in my mind and this one i just really i don't think i'm going to be let down by it i've intentionally not watched any of the live videos where they're playing the only songs i've heard you know is uh the two singles that they've released because i'm on release day i'm off work that day you know the vinyl's coming in i'm just going to sit in my man room with the lights out you know and and really uh really sink my teeth into it have you have you had a chance to hear it, or have you watched the live videos and, and seen those versions? No, I'm doing what you're doing. I'm staying away from it till the 10th. Um, you know, Magpie is a real interesting thing for me because um, uh, I've seen it. I've seen it happen. Um, uh, Mark was on tour, and Elijah was as well um, for their for the Holy Ghost stuff, um, and that was around the time that Mark and Rish had started reconnecting. Um, and so I was around for some of the text messages that they were exchanging, you know, pre magpie. Um, and we were doing my second record and they, they had finished omission. Um, but it wasn't out yet. Um, and Mark played it for, you know, for all of us, you know, one day, like, Hey, here's this top secret thing that's, that's coming. And I just remember thinking, Holy crap, like this is the closest we're ever going to get to a new black crows song. Um, and, uh, you mentioned before kind of around Ed, you know, how the Black Crows were never really that sentimental. Um, you know, I think a lot of that was driven by the negativity um, that was always present and part of that dysfunctional family. Um, and I mean the whole band, not just the Robinson family, although it's certainly a dysfunctional family. Um, but uh, Magpie is something completely different. And it's been um, clear, you know, the times I've been around, um, any of the members of that band, uh, Rich, uh, is in a great space. Um, he's, he recognizes what music has done for him. He recognizes what music can do for everybody in that band and how lucky they are to have a loyal and, and, um, active fan base. And, um, you know, the Black Crows were ruthless, um, back in the day and, and they were ruthless to even to some people that contributed to the band. Um, you know, there was, uh, there was an, a, the way that, that, that people were paid in that band was, um, interesting and, um, not exactly, I think what people would expect. Um, and magpie is different. Uh, magpie is a positive force. 
that's looking to be around for a long time, that is being incredibly fair to everybody that's involved in it. And it's not just, you know, um, lining the pockets of one or two people. Um, and the, the, the positivity that surrounds that band is going to help that record. You know, it's, they've been, all those players have been excited to be working with each other, you know, ever since the first session, you know, at, at that little uh, studio in New York. Um, and uh, I think they're so excited to be out on the road playing with the people that they're playing with and playing the songs that they're playing. And I think people are going to be surprised at how many Black Crows songs sneak into their set, too. You know, they're, they're certainly, um, you know, they'll play the faces, they'll play the Black Crows, and they'll play that new record, um, then all the Magpie stuff. Um, and, uh, and I'm glad they all figured it out, you know, how to, how to turn it positive um, on their own and before it was too late. Um, and we all get to benefit by witnessing it. I, I'm in complete agreement with you, and I just I think it's something very very special. And I, like I said, I was lucky enough to see him on that first tour. And um, normally, when I'd go see him with Ford, if it's general admission, I would always go sit stand in front of Mark. And for whatever reason, on this one, I stood in front of Rich. And I'm kind of like you. For years, I always thought, man, Rich is just a sourpuss. Why has he always got this look on his face? You know, and then I heard an interview with him where somebody asked him that, and he said, I- "I'm not in a bad mood." He said, "I'm trying, I'm having to direct the band, so I'm having to listen to everybody's part and make sure you know that the train the train's going to arrive on schedule." You know, but uh, obviously, I'm sure with all the negativity surrounding you know them at the time that had to weigh on him, the thing that struck me the most was he smiled the entire show. He was telling jokes in between songs. You know, and just seem completely at peace with who he is and where they are. And like he said, you know, that first tour was to pay respect to the past, you know, and this one going forward is, you know, still pay respect to the past, but we're, we're our own entity now. And yeah. um, I, I'm just, uh, I don't know, I'm like you. I, I think August 10th is going to be a special, special day when everybody gets that vinyl or that download, however they get it. And uh, it's just going to remind me of old times, but... Uh, Hopefully, I hope this is something that five years from now they're still doing music. I get the sense that's what they want uh, because they all seem to be so happy. And um, uh, I think we just, as fans, are, are very, very, uh, very lucky because, uh, like you said, I think they're in it for the right reasons. And, you know, they, they uh, on those message boards, uh, the, was it the Boger Brothers, you know, like take out, you know, they tra- travel all over the country. And, uh, man, I, I'm honestly. I'm thinking about trying to make that work maybe next summer if they if they go out uh, and do that. I've got a uh, I'm lucky enough with my job. I have a lot of vacation time, but uh, anyway, it's good that they notice that they notice those people in the show ten shows in a row and acknowledge it and everything. So, um, Craig, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. It's it was good to do this with somebody that's a musician and can add a little insight and somebody, quite frankly, that has you know has a relationship with uh with some of these guys um i, I really enjoyed it and like uh i've people listening i told craig beforehand on these crow shows i don't do any research because i just want it to be you know two guys sitting around like we're at a bar before the show starts you know and we're telling war stories i saw them you know in 95 you know and they played this and i was at this show and um 
you've uh, you've given great insight not only into music but kind of the inner workings of the band. And so for that, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, and go uh, go uh, to uh, it's Craig. Uh, I'm sorry, it's just Craig. Uh, it's website and like the guy's giving away free music, so there's no reason not to get it. And I promise you, it's good. Uh, he's uh, as I have two albums on the way, um, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, testing them out on my new uh, turntable soon. So uh, once again, uh, just huge thanks to Craig. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I plan on doing the next one. Will probably be on. I think pro- we're probably going to do three snakes. I've got somebody lined up to do three snakes, and then uh, Boa has said he was going to do Southern Harmony with me. So, hey, say hi, say hi to Boa for me. He's uh, uh, he, it was his copy of that nineteen nine that that Vegas show that I played for Mark. So he's the taper that slipped me the copy that never should have slipped me the copy. So oh, cool. Well, you know, I was I never knew his I never knew his name other than just Boa on the message boards, like uh, you know, all those Black Crest message boards. And uh, somebody chimed in when I when I said this was you need to uh, you know his name on Facebook's RC Gar, right? And yeah. was like you need him on there. And they go you know he's Boa. And I was like oh okay I know exactly who you're talking about. And so RC and I were friends for like a year or two on Facebook before I made the connection. And <laughs> he, he was the king taper like he had everything back in the day. Well, uh, and, and he actually worked for them, correct? Yeah, I you know. Um, I think he did, um, and I think his connections are on the on the Chris side of things. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, it'd be interesting uh, get his take on everything. Get his take on everything, yeah, for sure. Well, uh, like I said, the Three Snakes one's probably going to be the next one, and then we'll probably do Southern Harmony, and then I'm probably going to chill for a little bit on the Crows related stuff, and then we'll hit uh, probably By Your Side and Lines. And I do have somebody lined up when the uh, Magpie album comes out. We're gonna. I think we're both going to listen to it for a couple of weeks and then we're going to talk about it. So once again, Craig from it's just Craig. Uh, awesome time, man. I really enjoyed it. I think people are going to enjoy hearing your, uh, your insight and uh, uh, you, you're such a music fan. I'm sure uh, if you're willing, we'll find another way to work you into another episode of uh, maybe another band. Absolutely. I'd love it. All right. Thanks a lot, everyone. And uh, Chris and I will be back uh, next week and we hope everybody has a good week.